Today's episode is brought to you by Malwarebytes Premium. Protect your computers and devices from cyber attacks 24-7 with Malwarebytes Premium. And go to malwarebytes.com slash lock and code for an exclusive offer. That's malwarebytes.com slash lock and code. Surveillance is the business model of the internet because advertising is the business model of the internet. And advertising is convincing you to do something that you might not have done otherwise. Surveillance-based manipulation is the business model and anything that gives a company an advantage, they're gonna do. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about AI's role in a future of mass spying. In December, the cryptographer and computer security professional Bruce Schneier wrote that after the internet paved the way for an explosion of surveillance in phones collecting our locations, credit cards collecting our purchases, search engines collecting our searches, uh, computers and smartphones collecting our interactions with them, and much, much more, artificial intelligence will pave the way for an explosion of spying. Schneier argues that spying and surveillance are related but different things, but broadly, spying requires a level of human labor that, until now, was difficult to replicate at scale. So combing through data, interpreting data, finding out what the data says about a person or a group of people is human work. AI Schneier said, will change that, as AI models are already competent and improving daily at summarizing copious volumes of data and and pulling conclusions from that data. And about that data, remember, companies and governments already have it because of the surveillance models that drive modern online commerce and the surveillance regimes that governments across the world insist are vital for day-to-day security. But with AI... Companies and governments could do a lot more with that data than they already do, Schneier said. Quote, all the data will be saved. It will all be searchable and understandable in bulk. Tell me who has talked about a particular topic in the past month and how discussions about that topic have evolved. Person A did something. Check if someone told them to do it. Find everyone who is plotting a crime or spreading a rumor or planning to attend a political protest. There's so much more. To uncover an organizational structure, look for someone who gives similar instructions to a group of people, then all the people they have relayed those instructions to. To find people's confidants, look at whom they tell secrets to. You can track friendships and alliances as they form and break in minute detail. In short, you can know everything about what everybody is talking about. End quote. Today, to help us understand the implications of mass spying, uh, where the data for mass spying comes from, and how people will respond to it, we're speaking with Bruce Schneier. Bruce, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. We are so excited to have you here, and this is right up my alley uh, in just understanding spying and surveillance. Uh, I've worked on these issues for some time, and I'm just so delighted to get to talk about it. And I wanted to dig in immediately, just at the top, right? I mentioned that 
surveillance and spying, as you said, are like these overlapping but separate things. And I'm keenly interested in knowing what mass spying will look like in operation. And I say that by that, I mean, we know that mass surveillance, right? It looks like it has this collect it all mentality. We see that collect it all mentality of the NSA, obviously, but also from companies, right? Companies that drive them to gather just like clicks and shares and locations and app downloads and all of that. And so that I think is a tangible thing, right? This collect it all mentality that I keep referencing. And so I want to know, what is the mass spying equivalent of that? What does mass spying look like in operation? So it's collected all, but it's collect different things. So let's step back here. We kind of know what mass surveillance, mass spying looks like. It's the kind of thing we saw in former East Germany, where like 10% of the population spied on the 90% of the population. And it was incredibly manpower intensive. Now we moved into a world of automatic surveillance, automatic mass surveillance, with the rise of the internet and the rise of, of cheap data storage and processing. And this is what, maybe 20 years ago when companies and the NSA starts collecting mass surveillance data. And that is metadata, the kind of data that Snowden talked about, data about data, mm -hmm. data from your phone, from your browser, who you spoke to, where you went, what you spent money on, what websites you visited, that's kind of mass surveillance data. Spying, the difference I'm making is about conversations. And while computers were easily able to interpret location data and data about who you spoke to, so your uh, email from and to lines, they weren't able to interpret what you said voice conversations, text conversations, email conversations. I mean, they could do keyword searches. And if you think about, you know, Chinese censorship is based pretty naively on keyword searches. <laughs> you say the bad word, you get censored. Yeah. That's still very primitive. Spying, listening in on a conversation, knowing what people are saying, required human beings. And there weren't enough humans to listen to everything. So you had this automatic surveillance. We can know where everybody is. That's easy. But knowing what everybody's saying, we still couldn't do. We didn't have the people. As AI becomes increasingly capable of understanding and even having conversations, it can start doing the role that people used to do and engage in this kind of spying at a mass level. Now, the question you asked started me in this monologue is what did that look like? And as the answer is, we have no idea, <laughs> right? You know, we kind of yeah. know what East Germany looked like, former Soviet Union. Yeah. We do know what some of these countries look like, but I don't think it's the same, right? It is yeah. not this kind of mass spying by corporations or by democratic governments. So we don't know, but it's yeah. worth at least thinking about. When I was trying to answer my own question earlier, writing these things, I feel like one of the potential futures here is instead of collect it all, it's this attempt at know it all, right? If I want to be well, like- it always was know it all, but now it becomes more possible. Yeah. And I was just hypothesizing that there might even be 
companies that are developing that say we have created a sort of package of questions that we use on AIs that we know and trust to discover these new insights. And we sell these packages of questions to companies that are trying to find out XYZ and ABC about their customers, right? Or governments about their persons. And that was one of the possible futures, right? It's just creating bundles of inquisitive questions, bundles of queries that can go through data sets and, and won't trip up those data sets based on the AIs that are being used. And that already sounds just awful. I don't know, like it sounds uh, both boring and dreadful, which is kind of what I think surveillance is today. It is boring operationally in the terms of like, we don't see data brokers. We don't see what gets collected really every single day behind the interface of the web. But it is used so much to power the direction of the web. And my guess is that's right. And it's not actually boring. Certainly the companies wanted you to think that. Yeah. It is It is very hidden. Data brokers spend a lot of effort making sure that there's no visibility into their industry. So we don't know the data yeah. being collected on us. But remember, this is still all surveillance data. It's not the contents of your phone calls. It's the, the billing information. It's who you called, what time, how long you spoke, that kind of information. Maybe the location of your two phones when you were talking. You know, this brings it up to another level. Yeah. You mentioned that right there, right? This is the conversations, the content of communications. And I wanted to address that kind of immediately here because I think whenever spying is discussed, right, a lot of folks do picture something like someone rifling through text messages or emails, right? The content of emails or even phone calls. And I think some people might initially balk at that and they might say and reject the premise based on things like, oh, Apple can't look at my iMessages. And Google said it wouldn't advertise based on email content some years ago. And, and my phone provider, I don't think, is recording my phone calls. And so my question after those kinds of claims, right, is, is that too narrow a lens to understand this future of mass spying? Essentially, what am I missing when I say those things to calm myself down? I think it's all economics. Google did realize that eavesdropping on the contents of your Gmail wasn't terribly useful. They didn't do it. Of course, they made a big thing. They made a virtue out of it. That stuff will change. I mean, we're already seeing, you know, is uh, this company using your data to train their AI? Will it be used to influence how an AI interacts with you? Already, we can see that the tones of voice we use with these AI chatbots is mirrored. You know, they say they're not storing it and using it for training. We don't know the answer. As this stuff becomes more valuable, as companies see a business interest in using it, I mean, of course, it's going to be used. It's not going to be a world where uh, we have to rely on the uh, you know, the goodness of the hearts of, of for-profit corporations not to abuse our uh, privacy. It's a matter of how cheap it is. It is going to become cheap for Google to eavesdrop on the contents of everyone's email conversations or for Zoom to eavesdrop on all of the uh, the meetings. Now, they currently say they're not. They're terms of service. They'll probably push back if they change it. I mean, they already push back because there, there was a thought that Zoom would be using uh, your information to train an AI. It turned out to not be true, but you know, there was a little panic there. But how long does that last? 
And we saw this with Facebook and their surveillance over the years and decades. They did a new thing. There was a pushback. There was an outcry. And after a couple of months, it was the new normal. So I don't know where this is going to go, but the tech is moving to the point where this stuff is possible and, in fact, easy. We talked about the business case for it, right? And you said, you know, there's, there's economics behind it and those economics can change at any given moment. And we can't really rely just on the terms of service agreements of one month applying months later, six months, 12 months, 24. That's all the business case. I wanted to just ask more broadly, who's going to be doing this type of spying? Is it only companies? Is it only some types of companies? Just more broadly, who will engage in AI mass spying? I mean, the answer is going to be everybody who can. Right. So, you know, who are the major players here? Certainly there are uh, corporations who are doing it for uh, manipulation purposes. And I mean, surveillance is the business model of the Internet because advertising is the business model of the Internet. And advertising is convincing you to do something that you might not have done otherwise. Surveillance based manipulation is the business model. And anything that gives a company an advantage, they're going to do. I mean, and we saw that with all these personalized advertising based on characteristics that you might not be happy that you're sharing. So companies will do that. Now, in the West, we tend not to have governments do this on their own citizens. They rely on corporations. So the U.S. government doesn't spy on us directly. They get the spying data from corporations who, who do that to everybody. You go out to other countries, more totalitarian countries, and governments do engage in surveillance and will engage in spying. And here I'm thinking about China, but other countries as well. So very much think of it in terms of power. And those that have the power will engage in the behaviors because it magnifies their power. That is no surprise. I love this idea here that like you said, you reduced advertising to convincing someone to do something that they wouldn't have already done. I just really enjoy that. That's all. I think that's a nice summation of, of what this is. And also, uh, separately, summarizing this as the folks who are in power do these things to amass more power. I think there's a lot of times where we could think, why would a company do this? Why would a government do this? And there's a lot of alleged reasons, right? Uh, the NSA will say that it collects as much data as possible for national security reasons. But they've been saying that for decades, and the national security reason seems to change every few years, right? There's a there's a national security risk du jour. And I think it's much easier and simpler to think of it as those that have power hope to keep that power and amass more of it. I wanted to separately ask, right, we talked about corporations, we talked about governments. What about people, like everyday people, right? Because I have access to AI tools in a way that I don't have access to data collection regimes. So are people going to spy on people? Is that something that might happen? I mean, people are already spying on people. It's more one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, there's an entire industry of super creepy spyware that is sold to people who want to spy on their wives and girlfriends. I mean, this is kind of a gross industry, but it exists. And it is used in many countries it is sold and used. So yes, but here again, the power matters. And it's generally the more powerful spying on the less powerful. In a relationship, right, it's generally the man spying on the woman because that's the power imbalance. So, yes, these tools are egalitarian, 
when you think about bulk surveillance, it's access to the data. You know, I really can't spy on my neighborhood. Sure, I can set up a camera in front of my house and like watch what's going on in my street, but that's all I could do. I don't have the power to put cameras everywhere. I don't have the power to get your email stream or your uh, Zoom stream. So I think you are going to see some use of these technologies by people who are not traditionally powerful. But in general, like all of these technologies, they benefit the powerful more than the uh, less powerful. I wanted to understand how we might think that people's behavior could change where mass spying becomes the norm. Because we know that people act differently when they know they're being surveilled. Will that also apply to mass spying? Will it be the same? Uh, I, I don't even know if we have information on that, but I wanted to just pose that question to you. Like, How does people's behavior change? I think we do have a lot of information on that because certainly people in the United States have lived under this kind of regime in post 9-11. Lots of Muslims lived in a world where they were being spied on a lot. Lots of people have, have researched, uh, John Penny comes to mind, uh, there are others who have researched how the feeling that you're under constant surveillance or spying, I mean, they're both the same here, I think, uh, leads to self-censorship, right? If you think you are being watched all the time, then you behave differently, right? You don't behave in the same way you would otherwise. So we do know that there's enormous chilling effect on how you behave, what you do, on your conformity. And if you think you're being watched all the time, you tend to conform. You're not going to do something different. You're not going to stand out. This seems really bad for society because that's how society innovates. You know, a world where people don't try new things is a world that stagnates. Take a sort of an easy example. About 10 years ago, I forget the year, gay marriage was became legal in the United States in all 50 states, became the law of the land. And that change was the result of a multi-decade process. For a while, it was illegal and immoral. Then it was illegal and moral. And then it became legal and moral. And in order for that to happen, in order for that whole progression, somebody way back in the beginning had to try gay sex once and say, you know, that wasn't so bad. That was kind of fun. And the reason they were able to do that is that they weren't being watched. They could do it in the privacy of their own bedroom and yeah. no one could stop them. Yeah. If you live in a world where, whether it's gay sex or marijuana or whatever it is that becomes the mainstream moral norm over several generations, if you can't try it, if that can't be a counterculture of doing it, it never will become the social norm. If everybody who tried pot in the 50s was immediately discovered and arrested, you'd never get to legalization. You never would get a generation of people that would say, you know, that's not that bad. Why are we criminalizing this kind of not harmful drug? On the current environment that we live in, right, where so much surveillance happens every day, again, both from corporations and from governments, I know that there are so many efforts, I would say, to stop that. But it doesn't seem like there's any actual way to dismantle it, right? We've built this world where we collect information. 
And it feels like mass spying, like the potential of mass spying to, again, produce even deeper insights means that we've kind of lost the battle on pushing against surveillance. I just wanted to see your response to that. Like, have we lost that battle? Is it too late to dismantle this surveillance world we have, this world of surveillance capitalism? Because AI spying will be too enticing. You know, I never think it's too late. And and that kind of fatalism doesn't make sense. We look at history. It's like saying in the 1200s, well, we try to fight against monarchy. I guess that didn't work. It's too late. Or <laughs> four centuries later, you know, we try to fight against slavery. That didn't work. You know, or yeah. you know, we'll never give women the vote. That that ship has sailed. You know, yeah. we as a species regularly make our society more moral, more ethical, more egalitarian. It's slow, it's bursty, but decade over decade, century over century, we are improving. So no, I don't think from now until the end of our species, the level of surveillance we see today cannot be rolled back. I think that is ridiculous. Like we no longer send five-year-olds up chimneys to clean them. We don't do that, Like We changed. We no longer allow companies to sell pajamas that catch on fire. We changed. We can do that here. You know, like the other big things, like monarchy, like slavery, like the patriarchy, these things are going to be hard to dismantle, but they are dismantleable. Near term, I think you're right. I mean, near term, both companies and governments are just punch drunk on our data, and they're not going to give it up. But long term, lots of things are possible and will happen. I mean this as a Hi, compliment. You are the most optimistic guest we've had on the podcast. You know, but I, see, I'm near-term pessimistic and long-term optimistic. Near-term, I think we're screwed. <laughs> right, right? The, you know, the tech monopolies are so powerful. And we saw that with social media, right? You know, both sides, Republicans, Democrats agreed, like this never happened before, yeah. that Facebook was harming our society in different ways, but it's harming society call Zuckerberg in, call the other companies in, yell at them, say something must be done, and nothing was done. And that is sheer lobbying power right there in operation. So near term, I don't see any solution. But our species has handled harder problems than this. This won't be the one that stumps us. That's so nice. That's so lovely. I wanted to close out on just trying to understand what could we do we talked about near-term pessimism, long-term optimism. Are there things that, like, let's say a person listens to this podcast and they're like, what can I do? What should I do, if anything? I, I want to close on that. Are there things that someone can do today? And it doesn't have to be something like, change this iPhone setting, right? Like, I kind of hate that stuff. Um, it's more so, like, is it a viewpoint to have? Is it just an attitude to have looking into the future? Is it a way to pour their energy into something? Just what do we do at this point? Now, I want this to be a political issue. I mean, this stuff changes when it becomes an issue that voters care about. Now, if there is a like debate question on this, if this becomes something that politicians are asked about, then change will happen. Now, if it isn't, then it is really just the lobbyists that get to decide what happens. So, you know, what should we do? is agitate for change. Make this political, make this something that politicians can't ignore. Now, where change is happening is the EU. Now you have listeners in the EU and they will know that things are happening there. 
you know, right now, Europe is the regulatory superpower on the planet. I mean, they are the jurisdiction where we got a uh, comprehensive data privacy law, where they are passing an AI security law, you know, stuff that you would never see in the United States. So look outside the U.S., but, you know, make this political. That's how we're going to make it better. Yeah, I think that's great. I have so much action near term happens only on a political landscape and to make it an issue that I think that's wonderful that this idea that a candidate has to answer a question on this. They have to have an answer for questions on this. Um, but we're fighting be- uphill. It's very hard in the United States to enact policies that the money doesn't want. Right? Money gets its way in U.S. policy and the and- money wants this. And disentangling money from politics in the United States is a different podcast. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have the time for it. But it is. Uh, surely you could solve that in half an hour. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, are you booked for the next half hour? We've got a different script. Uh, no, just completely kidding. It, um... it, it, you know, if I was able to solve that, I would be not doing what I'm doing now. Because you're right, because that might not be the most important problem. But as Professor Larry Lessig said, it's the first problem. It's a problem we need to solve to solve every other problem. Bruce, I wanted to thank you again for simply coming on today's show and talking about this topic. Yeah, it's fun. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at malwarebytes.com slash blog. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's show has been edited by our podcast consultant, Eric Johnson, at lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks. Thank you.